0: We'll be in 1 John, chapter 5, starting in verse 13. My sanity will have to wait, at least discussions concerning it. Before I was called as a pastor, I used to work in mechanical insulation, which is insulating pipes and ducts of mechanical systems. Uh, so the work is over the seat, like behind walls, usually concealed, sometimes under the floor. And uh, I was part of Local 5, which was a buildings trade union uh, located in Los Angeles. And so I'd have to drive up there from San Diego often. It was a four-year program. And before I could start work, there were some hoops I had to jump through. I had to pass an oral interview. I had uh, a maths and an English test. I had a drug test. I had to buy all the the tools on the list. I had to pay dues. And I had to have three people who were uh, journeymen or mechanics vouch for me and sign for me. So you have to get three signers to say that you're going to be an asset to the trade and you should be allowed in. Um, so one of my signers in particular, he was a very confident man. I remember him, he would take me and show me around. He'd be bragging about how good he was and and then at the end of all this, he would say, well, I'm not really bragging, I'm just confident. I'm like, no, no, you're definitely bragging. <laughs> definitely bragging, but you you are confident in your abilities. Um, you know, he he trusted that he had the skills and the ability, that any job that at him, he knew how to tackle it a multitude of ways. He wasn't going to be overwhelmed with work. So he was confident in his ability, in his experience, in his training. When we say confidence... We usually mean self confidence. It's usually, and we feel, it's something we feel, like we feel assured or we feel confident that we are able to do something. And uh, so I ask you, what affects your confidence positively or negatively? It's interesting the sort of things that we can place our confidence in. We can place our confidence in uh, our physical appearance. how our hair looks on a given day. I, I can't really use that one. I, I guess it would affect my self-confidence if my ha- half of my hair was off or really flat. Um, so clothing, stuff, talents, money, how you present yourself or what other people think of you. You get confidence from all these things. And often we place our confidence in things other than God. Something that's not God, something that can't save us, We place our our confidence in that thing. Now, our confidence as believers is not primarily a feeling. It's faith in knowing God and what he has said in his word. And I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It's written, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. We can put our confidence in people. We can put our confidence in people in high places, people who have power and authority. And would you agree that you tend to place your confidence in what you've seen work for others? Like you're confident to book those tickets or that hotel because you had good reviews online or you heard from a friend, oh, this is a great restaurant, this is a great place, you've got to try it out. If you go anywhere, this is where you need to go. And you can have a degree of confidence To say, this is going to be good because I heard it was good. And we can be confident in our own abilities. But as children of God, we need to place our confidence in him no matter how we feel or what's happening. We can be confident that he is He is truly in control. He is powerful, great, and good. So based upon his character, based upon his previous actions, how he has saved his people, how he did bring them through, the wilderness and sustain them for 40 years cause their clothes not to wear out their shoes to wear out he gave them everything they needed so we can have confidence that God will provide for us let's pray thank you Lord for the confidence we can have in you and I pray you'd show us when we begin to place our confidence in things other than you Lord thank you that you are patient with us and gracious that you give us the privilege of being your children and having brothers and sisters to be encouraged by, to support, to minister to, and to minister with. And thank you, Lord, for the plans that you have for us and that you've, you've revealed yourself through Scripture. You've revealed yourself in practical ways and through experience we can say you have been there for us, you have helped us, you have uh, blessed us, and you have taught us many things. And we know that you will keep doing so. May we be those teachable servants, those loving children that you are worthy of, Lord. And we thank you for your goodness again and your awesome power shown shown to us through Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 John 5, starting in verse 13. We concluded last week's message with this, but I think it's a fitting place to start. It says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John's writing to believers, ones who have been born again through faith. And this belief here that's spoken of is more than mental agreement, but faith demonstrated through corresponding action. If you believe planes are perfectly safe, then you won't have a problem with flying on a plane. You won't be, like, shaking and needing something to calm down because you, you believe that you're safe on that plane. If, if you are sick and you place your faith in your physician, you'll follow that, their recommendation. You'll take the prescribed medication. If you believe it's going to help you, you will do it, right? If you believe something's harmful, you will avoid it. So for us who have received the gospel, we placed our faith in Christ. We should know that we have eternal life. We have confidence in that. We can be assured of it. Do you feel a big sense of relief when there's a big debt that's been paid? Like if you are so blessed to say, I have paid off my house. I cannot say that. But that, at, when that's your final payments going in or your final car payment, I, I can. I've had that one. You pay that final car payment over several years, and you're like, that payment is gone. It's, It's like a little bit has lifted. There's something that's not occupying part of your mind anymore. Well, how much more confident can we be when our heavenly booking is secure, when we know that we have a future for eternity, assured us through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross? Confidence in our future means I'm not a slave to fear today. I'm not a slave to worry today because I know that God has all in hand. He has me in his hand, and I don't need to worry about where my food's coming from or what I'm going to do, but I know that I'm taken care of. And we feel as Christians more than relief that, okay, that's out of the way, but we have a confidence and a joy, a peace concerning our future regardless of circumstances verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. We have believed in God and his promise of eternal life. We can have confidence, therefore, that he will hear our prayers and he will answer them. God has extended an audience to us in the throne room of grace. And he knows our voices just like a shepherd knows his sheep by sight and by sound. He knows their, their temperaments. Just like a mother would know the cry of her child among many children, she Should know that cry. God knows when we cry out to him. He hears our voice and he is sensitive to it. And it's uh, it's like I don't know if you've seen videos where people bring their kids to work. It's kind of like they're on TV and their kids taking a, a sleep behind the desk. They, they're in a privileged place. They get to go in a place where I don't get to go. But because they're a child of the anchor man or anchor woman, they can come right into the studio and they can rest right beside their parent and take a nap because of their relation to their parent. And in the same way, we have this privileged access to go into God's throne room, to be where he is, wherever he is. We have the right and the privilege to be, the invitation, the freedom to be there. And so our confidence is not placed, well, uh, I get to do this, or I'm special because I have this ability. No, it's because of who our Father is. We take joy in him because he says, in Hebrews fourteen sixteen, in encouragement too, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Esther had to, she fasted and prayed for three days before she even went into the presence of King Ahasuerus, because if she went into his presence without being summoned, she could be given the death penalty. But he reached out the scepter to her. He welcomed her in. And so we can come boldly. She did not go boldly. She went trembling. She went boldly in the Lord, I believe, sincerely. She was completely secure in God. But as far as her future on earth, that was very much in question. Hence, three days of prayer and fasting. But we, it's good to fast. It's good to pray. And we can boldly come at any time talking about anything into the presence of God. And we can have confidence, it says. We have confidence in Him if we ask anything according to His will, He hears. We don't need to ask God if we should love others, but to ask Him how we can love others, how we can do that. Because we can have confidence asking according to His will. And He's revealed His will to us, hasn't He? And He will continue to speak to us and minister to us. And when our prayers are in alignment with his will, he will answer them. Now, these verses are not a formula to getting whatever you want, but it gives us confidence that God will accomplish all things when we ask him. If we seek God's will, it follows that we should desire and seek to do God's will. right? Not just to know what God's will is, but actually I'm asking him because I want to do what God's will is. Now in 1 John 3:22 3, 22 and 21, 21 and 22, previously he had written in this book, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. You see the connection here between praying according to God's will and doing what God's will is. God's will is not ambiguous. It's not something that we are kept really in the dark about because God's revealed his will through his word. And it would be wrong for us to take this, uh, I guess, a fatalistic view towards life. Like, well, God's will is going to be done regardless. So it really doesn't matter if I pray. It doesn't really matter what I do. I can pretty much do anything because God's will doesn't depend on me in any way. And so to kind of take a que sera, sera, view, whatever will happen will happen. I don't really need to, to concern myself with the will of God because God's will, it's going to be done. Who can stop him? That's not the approach that we should take as children of God because that assumes a powerless position when he has all power and he says, come to me. If you need help, if you need wisdom, if you lack wisdom, ask and I will give it to you. We shouldn't attribute events to fate or destiny or some sort of determinism. Know that God is in control, but through prayer we can greatly impact God's actions that make a difference for eternity. It is true that God has ultimate plans that He will bring about, that no one can stop, that He will accomplish in His time. But think of the times in the Bible people have prayed to God and they, they had power with God because God listened to them. He obeyed them. Think of uh, Elijah. He prayed it would not rain. It didn't didn't rain for over three years until Elijah prayed that it would rain. And in the New Testament, it's clear that he was a normal guy, just like us. But he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and God listened to him. Samuel cried out to God when the Philistines came, and it says God thundered against them. Jesus prayed to the Father, and Lazarus was raised from the dead. Cornelius prayed. He wasn't even praying to this end, but God revealed to him in a vision that Peter was going to come. Hey, send to find this guy named Peter in, in Joppa, and, and he brought to him the words of life and received the Holy Spirit and was born again. Believers, they prayed for Peter's release. Now, can you imagine? Peter's in prison. James has just been killed, and the believers go, well, whatever happens will happen. You know, if God wants him to be free, he'll be free no they prayed for him and what happened the chains fell off his hands in the night the door opened on its own accord the angel ushered him out to the door of this place where rhoda was and he was and right to where the people were praying for him because people prayed they made a difference god's will was done there's countless contemporary and personal examples that we could cite to say God answers prayer. When people believe and they have confidence in God, not in their praying, in their confidence in God, God answers prayer in his time and in his way, in ways that blow our minds. George Mueller said, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. God is willing. Are we willing to pray? Are we willing to seek him? Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Petitions are usually signed to show united interest in making a request of government, typically. In some countries, I think in the UK, 100,000 signatures are required to have a petition make its way to parliament for discussion. In Australia, interestingly enough, there's only one signature required for you to give a petition to the government. Only one. So if you guys want to write a petition, feel free. There are rules. There's rules about format and length. 250 words or less. It has to be sent to the right people. There's a framework that you need to follow. So there's a document you need to fill out. But there's no number of signatures or a personal, a weight of personal importance you can place on this petition that's going to guarantee it's going to be even discussed openly in Parliament. Like, you have the right in Australia to give a petition, but just because you write a petition doesn't mean it's going to be uh, uh, made a decision on or even granted much time. Okay, Depending on who's in government, it, you never know how that's going to go. Um, As children of God, we have far greater confidence in Him that whatever we ask, no 250-word limit, no particular form that we have to use, oh, you didn't say your honor before you said that, so it's no good. Oh, you sent it to the wrong address. What? (laughs) What petition? No, we and just you can come before God with a petition, and He will hear your request. He will grant your request when it's prayed according to His will, when we have confidence in Him about anything. Your prayer can have an eternal impact. Our common faults tend to be worrying instead of praying, offering petitions, James says, with selfish motives rather than for God's honor and his glory. If you could turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6, we read how we're to pray. Philippians 4, starting in verse 6. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's a good thing to to ask, why should God answer this prayer? Is it in keeping with his word? Is it seeking to honor him? Is it with an aim so his will would be accomplished? Why we pray is about as important as what we say. God knows our hearts. Your words are not so important. But will we come before him confident in him? Even when we're grieving, even during hard times, we can come to him rejoicing because in seeking him, there is peace and protection. We can have confidence that he will be true to his word. So it says, anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made unto God. It can be a terrible situation. You can have joy in knowing that God is hearing your request and that he cares. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Australia many years ago abolished capital punishment or the death penalty. It's it's clear that God has not, that 10 out of 10 people die, and we die because of sin. That's why we die. Um, Emphatically, it's written in Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins will die. So our souls will face damnation because of sin, and our bodies also die because of sin. Even when we're born again, our lives, our bodies are corrupted by sin. We've been made clean and pure before God. We are holy and undefiled. Yet the, the penalty for sin is death. So our bodies will die. Um, and Jesus says, well, in a sense, you won't ever die. I am the resurrection and the life. So though our body dies, we know that our inward man is renewed day by day, that we will live eternally. Death has lost its sting for us. Under the Mosaic Law, there were many transgressions, a quite surprising amount, that were punished by death. A lot. A lot of sins were punished by death, but not all were. So there was a distinction between some sins that led to death or punished by death and others that were not as grievous. In this culture and time when this, when this was written, people regularly faced punishment by death for crimes, and they would have understood that there are some crimes that are more severe than others, and some are punished by death and others are not, like the difference we make between a felony and a misdemeanor. Now, it would be a mistake to, to say, well, this sin is not really a big deal, it doesn't lead to death, so we can kind of shrug it off or ignore it as if it doesn't matter. Well, all sin matters. All sin will cause separation between us and God. Um, sin not only results in, in spiritual death, but a shortening of physical life. And that's the kind of death that's spoken about here. And we see many examples in the New Testament of people's lives being shortened who were believers because of sin. Um... We read in Acts chapter 5, for instance. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas had a land. He sold the land. He brought the proceeds to the apostles. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they also sold a plot of land, and they kept some from themselves and placed a portion of it at Peter's feet under the guise of giving all. Now it says in Acts 5, 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. So lying to the Holy Spirit, in this case, was a sin punished by death. Remember what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, you guys, you're coming together to celebrate communion, but you're, you're gluttonous and you're getting drunk. You're not waiting for each other. You're not eating and drinking worthily. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Because of the excess and debauchery in the church surrounding the Lord's Supper, people died over that. That was a grave sin. It was a problem. So we see that sin is punished by premature death. I include these examples because they're under the New Covenant. There's many more examples, if we were to take the whole range of Scripture, when this also is true, that if you walk in sin, it leads to a shortening of your life, right? premature death. All unrighteousness is sin, but not all sin is punished by God with premature physical death. Okay, So we have that all established. Now, moving on, John says if we recognize a brother, a fellow believer who's sinning in a way not punished by death, we should pray for them. So if someone is in sin, or you recognize a sin, and they haven't dropped dead like Ananias, well, you should be praying for them, right? You should pray that they would um, come to their senses, and they would obey God. We know that um, if someone's sinning grievously, we should not pray that they would die, right? It's God's will that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. You're like, Lord, kill him. He's doing the wrong thing. You know, in that life now, you're, you're, you're being dishonored. No, that's not in alignment with God's will at all. He sent his own son to die so we could live. So we're not to pray for others' destruction. God will destroy who he destroys. He says, I kill, I make alive. Like vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can leave that to him. We should still pray for those who are sinning. It's not for us to go, well, is it a sin unto death? Is it a sin not unto death? Because if it's not a sin unto death, then I'm going to pray. But if it is a sin to death, then I'm not going to pray about that. No, pray. Pray for that person. I like what I read this very morning, and I love it when God gives me some extra clarity on something. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, the children of Israel had sinned, and they said, God, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We want to be like the other nations. They demanded that God give them a king. And Samuel said, guys, you're making the wrong decision here. This is not good in the sight of God because you're rejecting him. You're refusing him and you're choosing to put your confidence in a man rather than God. People are like, we don't care. We want a king. Okay. So he goes and prays. And God's like, listen to the people. Give them what they want. But warn them. Let them know that what they're doing is not wise and it's going to cost them in the end. He tells them and they say, we still don't care. We want a king. So after the king is anointed and Samuel proves with thunder and lightning in this big storm because he says, I want you guys to know that you've really made a mistake here. This isn't the season for rain or thunder, but it's going to thunder today. And boy, did it thunder. It said that people were afraid of Samuel and God after that day and the people pray The people said you know hey pray for us we've made a big mistake and this is what it says in 1 samuel 12:23 samuel says moreover as for me god forbid that i should sin against the lord in ceasing to pray for you but i will teach you the good and the right way They had gone off the track. They had stopped trusting in God. They had rejected him. But he says, God forbid, I should stop praying for you. I need to keep praying for you. And I will. And I'm going to show you what's the right way. Even though you've chosen in the past to do the wrong thing, I want you to go in the right way. Now, should someone die young? We should not assume that they have committed a sin that's led to death. We do not know that. That would be presumptuous. John's taking great pains to say here that we should pray for those who have sinned. There are sins that lead to death and there are sins that do not lead to death or are not punished by death among God's people. Ultimately, God's the judge. The big takeaway is that our praying for others can prolong their life. He says, I will give them life. That will give them time to repent and to be more fruitful and bring God glory. People need to decide themselves if they're going to repent. Uh, Our gracious God is not going to force anyone to do his will, but he's given us his will. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. And so praying for others is so important when we see someone that's sinning. We can confidently bring our petitions to the Lord, even if nothing immediately seems to change. Right? We pray once and we're like, Still the same. Nothing's changed. Why bother? Keep praying. You believe it's God's will for you to pray, then pray. Seek him. Ask him how to pray. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit makes groanings which cannot be uttered. When we don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is able to convey our heart to the Lord. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. So it's all good what God does for us. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. A genuine child of God will not be comfortable remaining in sin. Those who are born of God will be marked by repentance and righteous living. That's going to mark a child of God. Earlier in the book, in 1 John 3, 6, it's written, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Guzik in his commentary, this is a little review, he had written a quote from Stott that says, The present tense in the Greek verb is implied habit, continuity, continuity, excuse me, unbroken sequence. So a child of God is not going to continue in sin perpetually without repentance without desiring to do what god wants and has commanded it occurred to me that we can waste a lot of time just like we go is it a sin to death or not to death we can really wonder or worry about how someone else is doing with god really wonder about their their eternal security the condition of their souls What's important is that we look to ourselves and say, "Lord, am I doing what how is how am I doing with you?" First of all. And instead of worrying about how someone else is doing that we would be praying for them, and if we have concerns that we would actually talk to them about it specifically and tell them, just be very straightforward with them about how we feel or the things that are concerning us. There are occasions where God will reveal to us that someone is in sin in an area. And after we have prayed and we have continued to pray, having examined ourselves, it may be fitting to do what Galatians 6.1 says, that says, if a brother is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So that we would, we're the one who are feeling concerned. We have a conviction So we ought to be the one to initiate that conversation. It's never a fun conversation. It's not something we love doing. If you're really champing at the bit to nail somebody for all their wrongdoings, then your heart is definitely not in the right place. We also have to be mindful we're not judging someone based upon our own personal opinion or Personal conviction that they're sinning because we, we, they're sinning because they're not doing things that we think they should be doing or how we think they should be doing it. When Paul wrote this in Galatians, you know, you who are spiritual seek to restore other people. That's exactly what he was doing with this letter because the church in Galatia, he was the one that had preached to them. They had responded to the gospel. But then they had gone back to legalism and said, well, you've got to keep the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. And they had put away the grace of God and took the the yoke of the law upon themselves again. Most letters that Paul wrote, he dictated. But the letter of Galatians, he wrote with his own hand. And he says, see what what a large letter I've written with my own hand. It was a personal touch. He didn't do it through anybody else. He went directly to them and said, hey, guys, look. This is really serious and I'm really concerned. So talk to that person if you're concerned about their, their well-being or even write a letter. I recommend, I don't recommend email. If you write it with your own hand, there's some biblical precedence for that. Um, but he saw them heading to destruction and so he wrote to them. He says, guys, come on, come to your senses. It says, um, John says, He who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. The other time John uses this word touch, it's in John 20, 17, which means to cling or to attach to. And Jesus said it when Mary Magdalene said, you know, um, when he said Mary, she recognized him as, as being Jesus and she was grabbing him. He's like, whoa, whoa, don't cling to me. You know, don't I haven't gone to the Father yet. Go to my brethren. Let them know I'm going before them in Galilee. Make sure um, they know about our meeting. So Satan, demons, sin, if we're children of God, they can't cling to us. They can't attach themselves to us. They cannot claim ownership over us. We are preserved blameless in a world ruled by Satan. We are holy and pure even though we're living in a corrupt world. So this gives us confidence then that We can be in a world that's filled with sinners and be pure before God. We can be um, holy and acceptable to God regardless of what we see in the world. The world is corrupt and growing more so, but we can have confidence God will keep us pure. He has kept us. He will preserve us. We can, like the Galatians, go back to the bondage of the law, but that was voluntary. And by God's grace, they could return at any time and be restored when they repented. When Jesus sets you free, he sets you free indeed. All those things that want to cling to you and corrupt you, we're preserved from them in Christ. Verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The world, the cosmos, we say cosmos, so everything everything in the universe it's under the sway under the rule of Satan and he is a he is a uh, usurper he has no right to do that but for a season God it has allowed him to have control and to wreak havoc over this world of course control that God can overthrow at any moment because he is God and lately we've had no shortage of bad news, right? There's hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and mass murder and threats of war and all these things that come across the news and our feeds. And the Bible says that there are spiritual malevolent forces behind a lot of the things in this world today that are um, prompting these events. The devil hates God. He hates his people, seeking to oppose him, seeking to undermine him and his righteousness, seeking to persecute those loyal to God. Earlier in the book, we've read that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who has overcome. So we don't have to be afraid that the world is under the sway of the wicked one when we have a firm foundation under our feet who is Jesus Christ who will uphold us for eternity. He will preserve us. Our confidence must be in him. When I was working in the trade years ago, I did a job at San Diego State University, and uh, I was a bit surprised to find that they had a lot of buildings that were nuclear fallout shelters. San Diego is uh, the home to many naval bases, uh, there's several large, it's it's quite a Navy town. A lot of people from the Navy live there. Um, and so you go, I, I saw on the outside of this building it had a nuclear symbol, and I'm like, what is that? And, oh yeah, it's a bomb shelter that was built during the Cold War. So after World War II, a lot of these buildings were retrofitted underneath with these huge concrete bunkers underneath. And so as I'm walking through to access my the pipes that I needed to insulate, there were these 55 gallon drums, I mean, lining a wall two times the length of this from memory. I mean, it was just massive. The amount of clothes and water and hygienic items and medicine and all kinds of things. And they looked brand new because they'd been sheltered there for 50 plus years. It's like, oh, I wonder if that water is any good in that drum. It looks a little rusty. But it was there. If you if you needed water, if there was a nuclear explosion, you'd know where to go. It'd be hard to get on campus, but that would be the place. Um, so it occurred to me, you know, these things have remained fresh and safe because they've been encased in concrete for 50 plus years, just waiting for the time of use. Thankfully, they have not needed to be used yet. Um, the glorious truth is God is going to preserve us if he is our refuge. Now, we are not to hide away, to hunker down, to uh, isolate ourselves and to you know, try to keep the evil out because we have overcome. We can be strong in him. We can be bold to face the evil of this age, standing on the word of God, trusting in Jesus Christ without fear because our eternity is secure and we have boldness now. We have confidence now in Christ that he will uphold us. Even as I believe that he is going to save me in eternity, I can believe that he will protect me now. We can be bold to engage with others and share our faith. The gospel and Christ's love. It's interesting, when we come to faith in Christ, we begin to be concerned about the salvation of others. That's something I never really thought about before I was saved myself. I didn't care about everyone else's salvation. I didn't really know there was salvation to be had. But once I knew there was salvation and I had tasted and seen that God's good, I want others to also know this salvation. And just speaking for myself, I used to be much more concerned about people's souls for eternity than my own and how I was living. And I also used to be more concerned about people's souls for eternity than God getting glory out of their lives while they remained on earth. Like, God deserves that. He deserves glory from their life now, not just to have them forever. And if we would put effort into following Jesus to the same degree that we have concerns about others or for our own, uh, let's say, temporal future, we'd be better off. Now, these verses that we read here, they're not to give us assurance for other people. This is to give you assurance. For you to have confidence. So I want to just get you thinking about it. Do you have confidence in God that he is going to preserve you and present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy as it's written in Jude? We could read these verses and and go, whew, okay, I feel good about that person's salvation now. But the thing is, we're not to be confident in that. We're to be confident in God. God's not going to give you assurance for that other person. He wants to give you assurance and for you to be walking in that assurance and confidence today. We're a lot like Peter. After Jesus says, he he restores him, says, feed my sheep. I've got a job for you to do, Peter. I'm going to commission you. And uh, he says, "And I'll even tell you the way that you're going to die to glorify and honor me. Something that Peter said he would do but he, he denied him the first time. Interesting. He doesn't say, hey, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Man, it means a lot to me that you brought me back into the fold. I never thought that would happen. Praise you for that. No, he says, what about John? What about this guy? And Jesus says, what, what does it matter if he remains till I come? You follow me. doesn't matter what plans I have for him. You follow me, Peter. So we can go, Lord, what about that guy? Oh, what about her? What about him? You follow me. You trust me. You have confidence in me. And help it to be lived out in your life today. God has offered you unfailing promises so you can stand unwavering on the foundation of Christ. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. John and the followers of Christ, they knew who the Son of God was. They knew Jesus Christ had come. They had given them understanding of who God is. You can't know God unless you know Jesus. They realized this. In the beginning of this book, He had said that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. That's the first two verses. So he's saying we have seen him. We've seen eternal life manifested in Jesus. And it's through Jesus Christ that we know the Father. 1 John 5.11, just from last week. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Jesus is the true God. Jesus is eternal life. Knowing we have eternal life should practically affect the way we live now. Have you guys noticed that when you have insurance with something, you can tend to be a little bit more foolhardy with it? You know, your phone's insured. It's pretty old. You know that you could get a new phone. So you're kind of like, you know, I really don't care if this thing breaks right now. Don't care if I lose it right now. Because I really want a new phone. Since you know it's insured, you may not be quite as careful with it as when you first bought it. Am I right? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're more conscientious than that. When I travel overseas, I, I typically will get traveling insurance because that um, will handle the replacement costs of my mobile and my laptop, my uh, luggage, things of that nature. Um, so I can have health care, which I needed once. Home and contents insurance, you can insure a ring. And you can insure it so when you're out and about, it's taken care of. So you may have the confidence to wear your really special heirloom ring out of the house knowing that I could replace it if I needed to like if it's not insured maybe you'd never take it out of the box you would just keep it there because you don't want to risk it but insurance gives you a little bit more freedom to do things right now God gives us much more than insurance he gives us assurance and his word he has told us what he will do and he will see it done Through Christ, we are protected. We are provided for eternally. And if eternally, then now. (laughs) Do you see that? Eternity is not just in the future. Eternity now is part of that time. So we are protected in him. We are provided for in him. We can be bold in him without fear. Having eternal life in heaven for many is like having insurance that we never get to make a claim on. We say, oh, all that money I paid in insurance, I've never even seen return at all for that. It's like, for some of us, money like that's tied up in stocks and bonds, that's not really a liquidated asset. We can't draw on it now. It's tied up. It's somewhere way off there. We We haven't really experienced it yet. It's something that we're looking forward to, but we're just accruing it and... And someday we'll draw on that, and it'll be great. But you know, the life you have in Jesus Christ is not theoretical. It's not for some distant time that's going to begin when our bodies perish. We need to draw on the fact today that God knows us, that he has spoken to us. He has given us assurances in his word that we can trust him, believe him, that this whole world, yes, it's under the sway of the wicked one but he is able to uphold us. We are more than overcomers through him. It's fitting that we should grieve over sorrowful things, even as Jesus wept over the grave of Lazarus, but we should not despair or lose heart. It was only minutes later that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came. It's not eternal life we're to glory in, but in Jesus Christ who has given it to us who will spend that whole time with us, whom we will see face to face, who will commission us to do whatever he wants, and we'll be happy. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, That he understands and knows me, and I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I do delight. So don't have confidence in your stuff. Don't have confidence that, you know, just in the fact you're going to heaven someday. Have confidence in God, that you know Him. That's where our confidence is. I'll just finish with this little bit here little children keep yourselves from idols amen seems almost a strange end to the letter doesn't it it's quite just this last sentence not really a benediction but an exhortation that we would keep ourselves from idols and and even before that bit where he says little children we need to remember how feeble we are how needy we are before god that we're small and we're helpless and we're incapable of helping and doing anything for ourselves. Children don't need to be told that they're a, a little person in a big world and that there's people stronger than them and they need to, you know, humble themselves. A child knows that. They realize that they can't do a lot of things and they really idolize people who can do the thing, right? He can lift that. Whoa. He can do that. Look how fast. Look how high he can kick that ball. And you're just like, whoa, just starstruck. So as little children, we too can be starstruck with the things of this world. And we begin to idolize things that we think there's hope and help in, but there's no life there. It's only in Jesus. So little children, keep yourselves from idols. Remember who you are. You're a little child of God. Look at him. Be enraptured in him. Be amazed at what he does not at the promises that this world can't deliver on. If I could have the worship team come up, we will close in some singing to him. Our lives in this world, they're to be guided and sustained by Christ's life beyond this world. We have such an advocate in Jesus Christ. We aren't to spend our days fantasizing about heaven but to follow Christ's example of love and sacrifice, service and grace. Confidence in God is a gift that we can enjoy. Let's keep our confidence in Him and let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you are awesome in all your ways, that you know what we need and you know how to help us And Lord, uh, forgive us when we have thought ourselves sufficient, we have thought our good works sufficient, we have put confidence in things that are not of you and cannot save us. Lord, I pray that this knowledge that we have eternal life through you would affect the way that we live today, that we draw upon that knowledge practically and we would have such a boldness, we'd have such strength, such a generosity, such grace knowing that you have spoken and you will bring it to pass. Lord, make us people of prayer who honor and glorify you, who seek to do your will, who who not only seek your will, but but do it. Put it into practice. So, Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for your word and the wisdom of it and pray that you would touch our hearts, that we would rally to you, Lord. We would look to you. Our eyes would be fixed solely upon you and you would receive the honor and praise you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.